I'm used to see you in the background, and now you're in the foreground, and you just look different. Sorry. Tell Chuck. Okay. Tell Chuck. Um, he's got an F for the night, and I'm sending. <laughs> I'm sending him a. I'm sending him a quiz. Um, he said if he wakes up, he'll join from over there, but he, he only had like bed to sleep. <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah, I don't know what the. Anyway, we've got. Um, Marilyn, if you can turn your in your um, camera on, if you have one, and if you don't, don't worry about. It. I'm just glad that I'm my picture's not up there, so there's more room for you guys. And I'm assuming that's that's true that you guys are all up there. But anyway, uh, Melody, Bob, and Karen, hi, um, Lori. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Let's let's start. Any Doctor Bob? No, Doctor Bob. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Where did you go? I don't. Yes. Kay, go ahead. Uh, Connie said that she may be a little late tonight. Okay. Okay. So she uh, she will be, you know. Okay. Good. Later. Yeah. Detention for her. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll wait till she comes before I heap. Oh, here she is. Before I heap cold on her head, the way I do. <laughs> um. Connie, wow! I'm so glad we're all. God, it's I'm. Got pictures of all you guys, Tina or Marilyn. If you can put your pictures up, I'd like just to see, for my own interest, if all of you guys fit on. I just so good to see all your faces. Um, let's start. Any any prayers for tonight? I um, at this age, for most of us, there's very few of us that don't carry sizable burdens. So, if you've got prayers, let us. Let us Dr. know. Dr. Bob. Yeah. It's Melody. I'm, I'd like to pray for Pam. She has COPD and she's struggling right now. COPD is chronic obstructive uh, respiratory. Yeah. She been and hospitalized? Like, is she, she has been. She's been in and out and she's gotten to the point where she doesn't think she's going to last. So Wow. I mean, why why? No, what's emotions. going on? What's going on? Just, just she's it's, she's finding it harder and harder to do things. And she was a very active woman, you know, 30 years ago. So I don't know if it's emotional or if it's actually her body telling her she's yeah yeah her yeah, time yeah, yeah, is yeah near. But just yeah. pray for her. and John. I want to pray for John. I went to school with him and he passed away from COVID. Mm. Wow. Um, before we. Um, uh, Melody, how old is Pam? Pam, I'd say, was 65. Okay, so she's not young. Yeah. She's also not old. She's not old. Connie, you disappeared, or and Michael, we don't have your pictures. Are you? Are is your? Are your cameras on? Have we lost you or visuals or? I don't know if. Mike, can you get back? I want. I want to see if all of us can. Get how many we can get on a screen is really what I'm interested in seeing. Um, oh, here! Wow. <coughs> Are you all? Wow. I don't know if that's gonna. And, and I got back on. I don't want to do that. What's the together mode? I don't. Anyway, let's let's start. So. Anybody else with prayers? Yeah. 
Anybody else with prayers? Bet. Bet? Yeah. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, this may be coming too much out of a prayer for myself, but I'm going to risk this. <laughs> I hope it's okay for you guys. Um, um, thank you for the gift of our life today, Lord, and for your presence with us. We live in a world that encourages self-sufficiency, for to be on our own, economically independent, to be free. The play that we're reading is all about suffering, that there is no relief for Pericles. Wherever he goes, he's going to meet difficulties. There's something wrong with the world. We all know it. Um, and it's like the Jews when they asked for Solomon, wanting to be like other people. Um, we grew up in a world so measuring ourselves by other people and comparing ourselves and wishing for things we didn't have or things that other people have. Um, <laughs> you allow us our foolishness. Um, you were pretty tough on the disciples. Got angry at him a number of times. Um, you are a great God. Um, you wouldn't show your patience for us unless you loved us as, um, as much as you do and you call us to that same love. We're a great honor. Um, Holy Spirit, I ask that you breathe into all of us, all of us, all the people in line tonight. Um, let your spirit be with us and help us, each one of us, um, to turn more to you to not let the world go, the, the truths in Lear and Pericles, we know from our faith that we're, we are not supposed to resign. That's a, that's a Protestant position. If you're Calvinist, there's nothing you can do. You just resign and say, that's what it is. We're asked to believe, to not let go of hope, to fight, to be brave, um, to not just give in. So breathe into us your spirit, Help us to be with you, to look to you, to look to you for guidance, knowing that whatever burdens we carry, whatever suffering we're asked to bear, um, will draw us closer to you and bring us closer to who each one of us has been given to be, whoever that is. Help each of us to be. The readings that we're going to do tonight are going to give us a picture of ourselves that's very different from the one we have from our modern world. Um, our faith is different. It situates us differently in the world. So strengthen each one of us in our faith. You make clear in the Gospels over and over again, if we had faith, we could move mountains. Um, your commission to the disciples was to go cast out demons and preach and heal. Are we doing that? I'm putting in a tough question to everybody here online. Are we doing that? Do we take our faith to the world? Do we just, our Pope called us out. Are we going to church and resigning? Don't let that happen for us, please. Strengthen each one of us, um, particularly in the work that we do together. Um, I find a strength in being with you guys all the time. Let it be so for all of us. Strengthen all of us that we look to you for guidance. We trust in you. You are always, always bringing some good out of evil. Let it be so for us. 
Um, I ask for a special blessing on the work that we're doing together, that it will strengthen us in our efforts. Um, I ask a special blessing on um, Mary. Um, wait, no, um, sorry, Mary was, um, I'm sorry, Mary was, was that Melody, was that the one you, who, Mary, sorry, you guys. Mine is Pam. Pam, yeah, and Pam. John, yeah. Who, I'm sorry. Oh, oh I, sorry, Mike, got it. I'm sorry. It's Mike yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry, really sorry. I ask um, um, for a special grace for Mary. Um, she's just recovered from an ordeal and is going back <laughs> to face another one in school. Schools are not easy. They're just um, difficult places today. Help her in her recovery and most especially um, spirit. Breathe into her your spirit, help her to be open to it, to learn, to turn to you, to find a strength in you, to do those things that are so difficult for her. Please help her. And I ask for a special blessing on Mike, um, that he be strengthened, that his heart be quieted, that he, that he find a strength in you. I mean, it's for all of us when we have these experiences of our mortality, when we're close to losing something, or somebody we love is close to losing something. So be with them. Ask for a special um, grace for Pam. Um, help her to recover from her illness, strengthen her, and once again, most especially, strengthen her in her faith. Let all these people who don't know see that something's going on and put their trust in it. Um, easy to say. That's what Christ did when he was carrying a cross up the hill. Help us in that way. And we ask for a special blessing on John. Receive him into your kingdom. If he's to do a purgatory, most of us are, I hope. Um, let our prayers speed him on his way. Forgive him his sins, wash them away. Um, prepare him to come into your presence and know the joy of being with you and all those people who went before him, particularly those who are close in his memory. Let there be a great delight in that moment to suddenly be in the presence of all that glory. As for a blessing on Bet, a friend of our daughters, um, and I ask a blessing on all of us, Anne, Melody, Mike, Lori, Chuck, Watch over Chuck while he's away. David and Kay, Bob, Karen, Connie, wherever you are, Marilyn, Tina, all, Suzanne and me. Denise. Um, oh, yeah. Maxine passed away. Receive her into your kingdom. We have prayed for her. And Denise. Denise, um, watch over her. So... Um, <laughs> We are glad to be with you in these ordeals. They draw us closer to everything that you went through for us. How good that we can go through them um, again, knowing that we're with you in them. So we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, Karen, I got your note. I just wanted, while everybody's online, Karen wrote a little while ago 
thanking me for, uh, I hope you don't mind my saying this, she was thanking me for passing on that little poem, Crossing the Bar. I hope you've all read it. She said it, it evoked all these memories of, of time she had with her father when her father, I guess, was reading that poem. So I'm so glad that it did, genuinely glad, and I hope everybody reads it. Um, your dad must have been a good man if he was reading poetry. There's something wrong with the people in the world who don't read poetry. I'm sure you all are aware of that by now. <laughs> Actually, there's something wrong with the people who read poetry too much. I'm sure you, I'm sure you know that too much, too. Okay, um, you guys make sure you get the right Winter's Tale, okay? It's the Pelican edition. It's really good. It's really good. Let's pick up with um, Eliot's Poor Quartets and East Coker. You remember that that in Burnt Norton, we were... We were we be, he began with a philosophic statement about time. We went back into the garden to take us back into the garden of our mother and father, our ancestors, Adam and Eve, um, and to the still point. And, and it's so clear, if you read Eliot closely, that that still point is everywhere. And I've been arguing it a lot since we were in Boethius. It's everywhere. Um, in a dance, on a stairway, in walking, take away that still point and we would not keep our balance. In East Coker, um, he's he's picking at the same thing, but what like in a quartet, but it's a variation on it. The focus in East Coker is succession, things coming into being, passing away, and his imagery makes makes us aware that it, it's dung, dirt, leaves. It doesn't matter. Everything in nature comes to be and it passes away. The Buddhists think because that's true, or, and the Hindus think because that's true. All all reality is an illusion. We don't. We believe, the, we believe those things are real. It means we're involved in a suffering. Things come to be, they leave. Um, and the interesting thing about East Coker is, is his focus is on the seasons. Seasons come and go. You know, we're in late winter. We're approaching spring. Spring will be followed by summer and then fall. The very notion of seasons implies a still point. Take that seriously. If they keep recurring, what do they recur around? What holds them together? Even the passing of those seasons implies something fixed. That was Boethius's argument. Okay. So, he, so Eliot's been dealing with um, things coming into being, passing away. Um, I'm, I'm hoping you all. <laughs> are going back and rereading each of these things. In fact, I know you all, after every class, I'm sure you guys go back and read these before you go to bed that night. Um, he ends the second section of East Coker with these lines. We are only undeceived of that which deceiving could no longer harm because things pass away. In the middle, not only in the middle of the way, but all the way in a dark wood, in a bramble, on the edge of a grimpen, where is no secure foothold, menaced by monsters, fancy lights, risking enchantment. I'm trusting all of you heard that phrase, in the middle, not only in the middle of the way, but all in a dark wood. What's that from? That should jump out at every one of you by now. Oh, you're going to hear hard words from me in a second, you guys. What's that from? Yeah, Dante. Dante. Yeah, 
Remember, the Divine Comedy begins in a dark wood. It's in the middle of the way. It's where we all, in a sense, start our conversions. Um, menaced by monsters, fancy lights. It's our way. It's the world risking enchantment. It's all around us. Do not let me hear the wisdom of old men, but rather of their folly, their fear of fear and frenzy, their fear of possession, of belonging to another or to others or to God, anything that would seem to limit us. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. The houses are all gone under the sea. They all came into being. They passed. The dancers are all gone under the hill. So those are the closing words of the second section, okay? They're just consistent with the theme that he introduced from the beginning. <coughs> Sorry. This is the third section of East Coker. Oh, dark, dark, dark. They all go into the dark. The vacant interstellar spaces. The vacant into the vacant. The captains, merchant bankers, eminent men of letters. The generous patrons of art, the statesmen and the rulers, distinguished civil servants, chairmen of many committees, industrial lords and petty contractors all go into the dark, and dark the sun and moon and the almanac, the Gotha and the stock exchange gazette, the directory of directors, and cold the sense and lost the motive of action. Those are all great titles of great men. It's what the world sadly measures its sense. They're all going to die, right? They're all going to go into the dark. None of us is going to escape death. No matter how great we are, it's still waiting for us. So, um, and we all go with them into the silent funeral, nobody's funeral, for there is no one to bury. I said to my soul, be still and let the dark come upon you which shall be the darkness of God. By the way, sorry, I shouldn't do this. You know I don't like interrupting poems, but um, we've been doing Matthew and Francis, and I've just got so many of the passages from Christ on my mind. Um, remember the passage where the man comes to Christ when, and he says, um, let me bury my father first. Wants to take care of his dad. Um, which means I, I take it to mean he he wants to take care of him until he dies and then he'll and then he'll follow Christ. Christ's response to him is, "Let the dead bury the dead." Um, I hope that resonates with everybody here. Let the dead bury. How many of us are living dead? How many of us are living dead, going through the motions? As in. Um, Nobody, um, and we all go with them into the silent funeral, nobody's funeral, for there is no one to bury. I said to my soul, this is an allusion to St. John's, the dark night of the soul, you know, the, 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 the important mystical work of the Catholic tradition, the, the mysticism of, of renouncing everything in the world so that we enter into a darkness. I said to my soul, be still. And let the dark come upon you, which will speak, which will be the darkness of God. As in a theater, the lights are extinguished for the scene to be changed with a hollow rumble of wings, with a movement of darkness on darkness. And we know that the hills and the trees, the distant panorama, 
and the bold imposing facade are all being rolled away. Or as when an underground train in the tube stops too long between stations and the conversation rises and slowly fades into silence and you see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen, leaving only the growing terror of nothing to think about. Or when under ether the mind is conscious but conscious of nothing, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope, for hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So the darkness shall be the light, and the stillness the dancing, that still point, and the stillness the dancing, whisper of running streams and winter lightning, the wild time unseen, and the wild strawberry, the laughter in the garden, echoed ecstasy not lost, but requiring pointing to the agony of death and birth. You say I'm repeating something I've said before. I shall say it again. Shall I say it again? In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. And what you own is what you do not own. And where you are is where you are not. I can't think of a better explication of Pericles. If we took that last paragraph, it would be a perfect description, perfect description of Pericles in everything that's going on in his journey. Reread that last section at, at the end of three. <clears throat> you say I'm repeating. Start from there, just reread it on your own. Okay. Pericles. Uh oh. You all you all got my uh you all got my notes, I hope. Um hold on you guys. Um, what I want to do tonight is um, is begin with a few questions that I'd like you to keep on your mind as we read through the play and um, and then hopefully if if I can be better with my time than I usually is Emma I want to leave some time to, to see if we can take some time to answer these questions. Um, are any of you having, you? all of you know how to access the notes, right? None of you is having problems getting to the notes. We had a, a newcomer on, uh, in Francis and... Um, Actually, Bob, I could not find the notes that you posted yeah. today. I, I wasn't... Maybe I was looking in the wrong folder, but I couldn't find it. If you go online to our site and go up at the top right to content page, it's the second page, go to the bottom, you'll see the St. Francis and C's. 
if you go in there, you go to the, it's either the end of the Christian Middle Ages or the beginning of modernity, but you'll find Shakespeare in one of those. You go to Shakespeare and then go to comedies, and under comedy you go to Pericles. Okay. And that will give you all the notes that I put together for it. It gives you the maps, which I think are really helpful. I'm I'm very visual minded, so. Um, okay, let's let's go. Um, one of the reasons I'm really grateful. This is an accident. It wasn't planned. Um, is that I'm I'm grateful to be going from Lear to Pericles, and I'm grateful to be going from Pericles to Eliot particularly because of the last um, lines we read, um, um, because it opens up an aspect of Pericles that people so often don't see. I think you know that now. Lots of people read King Lear as nihilistic. They think it's Shakespeare's view of the world that shows how nihilistic and meaningless everything is. You know that I think that's absolutely wrong. That's just a complete misreading of the play. Um, good wins out at the end, even though the cost of it is great. That's a fact of life. It doesn't mean life is meaningless. It does mean that very often people do bad things and there are consequences to those actions. Very often they're from our own actions. Very often they're from other people um, whose actions influence us. We have to bear them even though we wish we wouldn't. And if that seems hard, just remember that that's why Christ came into the world. He didn't, he didn't come in because he was guilty and shared with things. He came in because he was innocent. Um, and he asks us to do the same. So the great theme, I think, of Pericles is that, is that a, a, a person being virtuous will make an opening for a greater goodness to take place in the world. Does that mean he'll be free of suffering? No, it does not. But it does mean that a greater goodness will take place. So one of the differences between the end of Lear, say, and the end of Pericles is that there's this, um, these amazing experiences of blessedness on the earth. It doesn't wait till the next life. There are these experiences of blessedness that, that are the result of Pericles' efforts to be virtue, virtuous. Marina and Thiasa, too. All three of them work hard at being good. They all have to suffer. They all face terrible temptations. But the end result of that, the fruit of those actions, of their efforts to be virtuous, um, is a blessedness. I can't wait to get to the ending because the ending to me is extraordinary. Um, so I suggested last week that w one of the things that, one of the qualities of the, of the play is what I'm calling the sort of serene detachment that Gower presents the play and um, keeps us at a distance from the pain that clearly Pericles is going through. Um, there's a couple of reasons for using Gower. To me, it's extraordinary. Shakespeare does nothing like this in any of, any of his other plays. For him to go from Lear to, to not get caught in King Lear in that kind of tragic intensity, when you enter into the interior of somebody as deep as Lear, to not get caught there and be able to step outside and present um, 
a view that's compatible with the one in, in Lear, but that doesn't enter into that intensity, that interior intensity, is just remarkable. And I suggested last week that it's the combination of those two things that represents our faith. That we're asked to suffer the pain of entering into somebody's life because we all know when we love somebody we very often have to suffer the burdens of those things about that person we don't like. And at the same time we're we're by our faith we're asked to step outside to trust in some power greater than our own. Um, so Shakespeare uses Gower. Gower is a, pres- um, a poet who lived centuries before Shakespeare. He was drawing on a work that existed before his time. So both poets, this is absolutely crucial to the work we've been doing. Both poets are carrying the past forward and keeping it alive. It's doing exactly what the scripture does. The scripture is the living word of God. If, if any of us are not feeling a miracle in mass, we're going to sleep. I'm saying that honestly. You know, I, I've been hearing the readings in Scripture for all my life. And there are times, Suzanne the same, there are times we come out of Mass sort of amazed at seeing things we saw in that reading we've heard two dozen times. It's important to remember the liturgy is the Word and the Eucharist. It's the living Word of Christ. He's the Word. So every time we hear the readings, if we don't hear God speaking to us, that is a miracle taking place, we're not hearing. I mean, we're like the people going to Christ saying, give me my sight, give me my ears. We're not seeing something, we're not hearing something. Is that clear? That's God living in the present now. He's speaking to us. He's carrying a past with him, speaking to us now, hoping that we will learn something about our salvation. That's why he gave a scripture to help us. So Gower serves a number of functions. One, he's carrying the past forward, making it real to us, showing that it's real. Shakespeare's using him that way because Shakespeare's the writer. He's using Gowan. And the other is by using Gowan, he distances us from the play. So we're at the opposite end of where we were with Lear. And that distance is important because it implies a trust it's Boethius' principle, bonum, bonum est diffusivum sui. Bonum diffusivum, bonum est diffusivum sui. Goodness is diffusive of itself. Goodness is diffusive. We've gone through this numerous times. Remember, the, the, the first stage, the first con- major conclusion for Boethius' arguments were there is no bad fortune. That's a conclusion he came to after a reasoned argument. God is good. There is no evil outside of him. It's not a separate thing existing on its own. Evil's a privation. It tries to go against the source of its being, and it can only fail. Evil will never triumph in our faith. Never. For the, for the Protestant to say man's evil, inherently evil, is to go against biblical teaching. Man is not inherently evil. God made him. He did this, it was good. He did this, it was good. I mean, this is the opening of Genesis, right? God's good. He's doing everything he can to answer the evil that we do. But he's also asking us 
to share in that work. Pericles is an instance of somebody doing that. Now let me stop. Is everybody clear on the principle here? What's going on in the structure? Because it's absolutely essential to this. Way. It's just, it couldn't be more different from Lear. <coughs> is everybody okay? Connie, are you with us? I I don't. I hope I haven't. Um, I hope I haven't cut out pictures. Um, Dave and Kay, are, is your picture on? If I yeah, I'm here. I'm just cooking and um, going to be eating in a second. <laughs> but I'm listening. One of these days, I'm I'm going to invite us all over to Connie's house for dinner. Yes, come on over. While we have glass. <laughs> I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Um, any, any, any questions about this principle? Because it's crucial to what we're doing. Everybody, by the way, this is what Plato said. This was Plato's great argument about poets. It's why, it's why Plato was so important to Shakespeare. Plato said that to help, be, help a person become virtuous, he's got to be able, um, how did he put it? He, so the two up of the education, this is the, one of the themes of, of the Republic, how to educate a person, a, a, a man, to become a good ruler. That man has to learn to be as tough as he can so that he can kill people if he needs to. Because sometimes the king will have to do when he goes into battle. We see that in the Old Testament all the time. But he's also got to be gentle and tender. So he's got to have gymnasium, he's got to have physical exercise, and he has to have music. Those are the two extremes. If you have one without if you have one without the other, you'll produce a jock. Just a mindless physical hulk. I know we all know examples of that. If we go to the other extreme, we've got a man who's too effeminate, who's too too emotional, too sensitive. To bring both of those things together should be one of the purposes of education, to try to help a person fulfill both things. Because anybody growing up in the world is going to have to deal with evil. He's going to have to answer awful, awful things. But he's also got to bring a gentleness. Christ is the exemplar of that. We said last time that Pericles belongs to those last handful of plays that Shakespeare wrote called Romances. In those plays, improbable, unbelievable things happen. Miracles happen. Um, we said that it's it's picking up the Job thing again. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? Pericles goes expecting to woo Antiochus's daughter. And he comes away um, fearful of his life and fearful for his nation. He knows that um, Antiochus is powerful enough to come kill him and, and destroy his nation. So he has to go into exile. Um, I'm going to offer a thought here that I didn't last time, but we're going far enough away that I'm trying to add things. This is this is purely speculative on my part. I I can't. I'm I'm sorry. Uh, Heather's not here tonight because I know she takes history seriously. Here's a here's a, a a thought I have for what it's worth for you guys. If you've read Maccabees at the end of the Old Testament, you know that. Maccabees is describing the, the conflicts between the Jews and the Hellenic cultures surrounding Judea. 
that all of these people, Antiochus is the king, the central king of this Hellenic world. And the Jews are, are a people set apart because they believe in this one God. And Antiochus, who belongs to the Seleucid dynasty, um, has conquered them, taken the temple, and forced the Jews to worship Greek gods. And any of the Jews who refuse are killed. It's one of the heroic things that we read about in the, in the uh, Old Testament, that these Jews will not give up their belief in God. It's one of the things that Christians face in our world. Are we compromising our belief in God and going along with the world because we're f afraid to risk ourselves and our faith in God isn't very strong? So in Maccabees, we keep getting these examples of these courageous Jews who are holding off this Hellenic world. Antiochus is the king, and his city is Antioch. Where is this place taking place? Antioch. Or at least that's where it starts. Pericles goes from Tyre north um, to that border between, I think it's between Turkey and Syria, to, to the city of Antioch. Here's my question, and I, I can't, it's just interesting that he would have chosen that as the center, because Antiochus is an evil man, and he's a man given to his own desires. It's going to be one of the major themes of the play, what men do with their desires, particularly for women. Um, is Shakespeare trying to hold on to the best of that Hellenic world by answering the evil? Because one of the things that we inherited from the Greek world that has been one of the greatest parts, aspects of our legacy is um, Plato's critique of beauty. Beauty is one of the most powerful motivating forces in the world because beauty awakens desire. That's an especially tempting thing for men. The beauty of women. We saw that in the Iliad, we saw it in the Odyssey. Remember, Helen was the one who caused the war. I mean, Paris took her away. Menelaus came to avenge it. Beauty is that powerful. It's, it's behind 99% of the <laughs> advertisements on TV in America, and you know the, the role that women play in Hollywood, beautiful women. <clears throat> is Shakespeare doing what he can to hold on to the best of that Hellenic world while acknowledging, recognizing the evil in it, what Antiochus does. I, I just throw that out as a background question. It seems to me he knows that, and it's one of the things he's doing. And we know that in, um, in the uh, voyages that Pericles is taking, he's going to many of the cities that Paul went to to help convert those people to Christianity, to turn them from their own ways. I'm going to argue here that that um, that the incest that Shakespeare shows in the beginning between Antiochus and his daughter is actually far more prominent than most people want to allow. And by that I don't mean just fathers having sex with their daughters. I mean that when men go to have sex with a woman, or have, like prostitutes, because Marina is going to come into that later in the play, we're going to see it. They're actually having sex with somebody's daughter. So there's that inescapable quality to sex. Even if it's remote, it's there. So give that some thought. And um, the theme of exile. Um, Pericles has to go into exile. One of the great themes of the literature that we've been reading from the beginning was first 
uh, made clear by Homer, Odysseus spends his life practically in exile. In returning from the war, he tries to get home, and it takes him forever to get home. He's in exile. That exile was absolutely essential for his education. He would have never come home to be the husband he comes home to be if he had not gone through that exile. St. Augustine calls us a peregrine people, a peregrine. It's like a bird in flight, if I remember. The church is our home because the church is on its way. There are two cities, the city of hell, the city of heaven. We're going to go to one or the other. Those are going to be our final destinies, one or the other. In between, we're, we're on a journey. We are a pilgrim people. Christ was in exile when he came here. He said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was in exile. It was through that exile that he took on everything human. He had to do that in order to answer our sins. And he asks us to join him. If we get too comfortable, I've said this so many times, if we get too comfortable on our home, if we expect too much of life here, we're giving up something of what our church, what Christ is calling us. We're on a journey. We're on our way. So the theme of exile. And finally, the theme of regimes. There are six regimes in the play. And it's interesting that Pericles' growth depends on what he does with his experiences of each regime. So while Shakespeare is encouraging us to step back from Pericles, he's also asking us to learn from what happens between an individual and his regime, what he's learning about the regime in which he's living for a time or dealing with. Um, okay. <coughs> Now those are some of the things that we talked about la last week. Um, tonight I want to keep that, I want to keep alive that notion of um, our Catholic heritage to become completely involved and yet detached. The two settings we talked briefly about, all of the regimes are set against the sea. So once again we have to ask what is the sea here? I don't want to deal with it now, at the end I'll come back to it, but it's crucial. What is the sea? He goes to sea. It's a, he's at sea the whole time. Um, he loses his father's armor. The sea returns it. I don't want to give away the play. He's going to lose his wife and daughter. He throws what he believes is his dead wife in a coffin into the sea. The sea will give her back. What is the sea? What is it? An Im it's been an important image. What, what, is, what is this poet asking us to learn to see about our life? Even if we don't live in the sea, is there some way in which the world around us is sea-like? We're in storms, our families, relationships, losses. Fortune, again, constantly, from Boethius. Fortune is a teacher. God allows things to happen. Um, the question is, how do, we, how do we take the buffets of fortune? In Pericles, we're watching a man continue to hold on to his virtue while the world is shifting everywhere. The family legacy, the, the relationship between a father and daughter is absolutely crucial to this play. Absolutely crucial, as it was in Lear. 
the two most important relationships in Shakespeare are between a father and his daughter and a mother and her sons. And I'm trusting that everybody knows in that sense, marriage is a really important what we do together as husbands and wives. <clears throat> Sexuality, the desires awakened, particularly by beauty. <clears throat> Music is fundamental. There's almost an act no act takes, I don't think, no act takes place without music playing some role. <coughs> um, look at Act 2, Scene 5, Line 30, just for a second. If I can find it, Act 2, let's say, Act 2, Scene 5, Line 30. This is... Um, Just before Pericles and Thesa will become engaged and married, after Pericles has won the tournament and all the knights are gathered to pay honor to each other, and the king says, Sir, you are music's master. Pericles is the only figure in this play to play music. And the king's response to him is, You are music's master. The miracle that takes place at the end of the play will immediately involve music. As a matter of fact, it will be the music of the spheres. It will be that heavenly music that is present in God's universe everywhere, everywhere. We don't hear it because we're trapped in our bodies. Shakespeare is the only man that I know of in all of literature who hears that music, which means he is one with God's order. Imagine going to your death and hearing that sound how glorious it would be. So the theme of music. Pericles is musical. <clears throat> he has music in his soul. I remember introducing this to you when we all started with the Iliad. Achilles, even though lots of moderns hate him, because he is a warrior, he fights and kills people, Achilles is the only man in that epic to play music. When he's in, when he's back in his tent whining, and I'm, I can't, I'm being, I shouldn't, when he's back at his tent in his ordeal, he's playing music. Okay, so it's um, whether a man has music in his soul or not is not a small thing. Men who don't have music lack something. They don't feel things they should. And the importance of suffering. Remember in um, Chaucer's *The Knight's Tale*, at the very end when Arcita had died. And Theseus gave that long speech, and he said, Make a virtue of necessity. That's straight from Boethius. Make a virtue of necessity. It means we have to suffer sometimes. Can we turn that suffering to good by trying to be virtuous when we do? It doesn't mean resigning. It doesn't mean being passive. But it does mean, once again, avoiding those extremes. Rage or resignation. Giving up, going nuts. Can we, can we suffer and still struggle against the evil around us? That's Pericles' great task. Okay, so those are the major themes. One of, the, I mean, the two, two of the things that I'm asking everybody to pay attention to now are um, Shakespeare's method, that he has everything come to us through Bowie or through Gower, right? We get everything narrated. 
And one of the things not to forget, <laughs> this is really funny, when Gower appears on stage, he always tells us what's going to happen. Why is that important? What's the function of that? That's not small. It, it says something about Shakespeare's vision. I think this is something Catholic. I'm saying this very seriously. Why does he do that? Isn't it kind of like an overture for an opera? It sets the tone, puts us in the mood. Yeah, but what does it do to already know what's going to happen? Wait, let me put this differently. I'm going to put this differently. It's one of the reasons I don't watch the news. Is I, I just when you hear the news, do you, this is so funny. Do you ever hear anything new? Does anything happen in the news in any day that you haven't heard a million times before? If you know history at all, going back to the beginning. I'm really serious. Really serious. If you get caught up in the news, what does that mean? Like it's new. Saint Augustine described it in the in the gladiatorial in the arena. When people get so focused on watching bloodshed, they can't take their eyes off it. It's like us when we go down the freeway, if you see an accident, you know, you've got people turning there. Because we're fascinated with suffering, wrongs. What's the function of Gowan telling us in advance what's going to happen? We already know. In our Catholic faith, <laughs> Is there anything we'll learn tonight watching the news that we don't already know and haven't experienced a thousand times over? Am I, am, are you guys following? That it's, it, it helps us to distance ourselves to not get caught up in things. We're still going to experience them. We're going we're to be with Pericles when he goes through them. So it's not as if we're turning a blind eye. We're not, we're not, um, not being with him. But we already know in advance. It's like a sight that helps distance us from something while we're involved in it. Because we already know. And here's, here's the crucial thing. If we believe Boethius, if we thought his argument was rational, and that's a reason that's in accord with our faith, um, then we already know that good is at work. If our faith is active, we know. Does that mean we resign or passively turn away? No, it doesn't. But it does mean it should give us a certain strength to know this is going on. That's the fundamental principle from Boethius. And it's fundamental. Shakespeare wrote no comedy, no tragedy that didn't have that principle at its source. How can tragedies end well? I mean, I mean that, you know, most people say tragedies are nihilistic. They're not. Good tragedies mean every evil that's awakened in the play is answered. Name a Shakespeare play in which evil isn't answered. Every tragedy restores a balance. It represents a recovery of some good lost or destroyed or wounded. But it's always it always reaffirms a new founding. An evil's been answered. The way has been prepared for a new ground. Can May get, I add something? Wait, wait, sorry. Yeah, so can you get that from Calvin? Oh. No, you won't. Man's inherently evil. A Catholic believes man's inherently good. We're wounded. We fail. We cause problems. 
people suffer, but good is always at work. Sorry, Melody, yeah, you go ahead. Sorry. That's okay. No, um, I was just thinking in terms of Gower and also the time period. Like, you know, with Lear, it was day-to-day, you know, or a three-day time period. Whereas with Pericles, he went off in a year later or 10 years or 15 years. So that also made it easier to absorb and digest because it, I guess the suffering had been going on for a long time. It wasn't new. Yeah. yeah. So it, it made it a little easier to for me. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right on. No. It's a really good point. Any other? So the the two things I want everybody to keep in mind is this this dramatic structure or method that Shakespeare uses by having Gower presented the layers of distancing between Shakespeare and Gower and Gower and the play and um, what it does to us what it how it changes our perception or experience of everything goes on in the play and the second is remember to keep in mind um, all the regimes how they're different and what Shakespeare or what Pericles learns from each one <coughs> now here's some of the questions that I'd like I'd like everybody to keep in mind as we go through the play first question that I'd like everybody to keep in mind is there an allegorical underpinning to the play um, Pericles is always at sea and there are constant storms that force him off his aim, his journey where he's going um, how are we to understand the sea, the storms, fortune um, is there an allegorical element do they represent in some sense the storms in our life when things turn upside down for us that things happen that that discombobulate us, that throw us off, that cause us suffering. Remember, we our faith is that there is a good God, and He's doing everything to help us. Um, Christ calmed the storms. Peter, <laughs> Peter had a great moment of faith when he saw Christ walking on the water, and then he decided to walk on the water too until it got a little bit rough, and then suddenly he went under. <laughs> But, I mean, it didn't change the faith. It's, you know, Christ is there. God is always doing these things. So is there an allegorical order to things? Saruman is a physician. He heals, I'm giving away the play, I don't like doing this. He heals Thesa at the end. Does he do that purely as a physician? Or does he do it as a physician with faith? Does he see things other people can? I, I want to underscore this question right now. You and I have read um, All's Well That Ends Well. We've experienced Helena curing the king. You know that all the doctors tried to cure that king, and none of them could. Shakespeare's on the verge of... He knows the modern world and its implications. He knows it probably better than people who've lived since. In fact, he does. Helena has this third eye. She sees things. Her, do her father was a doctor. He saw things. She does something that the other doctors can't, and after she cures him, remember Paroli says, the age of miracles is past. 
she does something nobody else expects going to happen because they don't believe in miracles anymore. They believe in science. The doctors can't cure them. She does. Um, Saramon is a doctor. He cures Thesa. How many people today go to a doctor to be cured? And I want you to set that question that I'm asking against Christ in the context of what he does when people come to him and ask that he heal them. He heals again and again and again and again and again. He gets angry at his disciples when they don't seem to get it. And he says to them, to them explicitly, faith can move a mountain. He says, if you had faith, you could move this mountain. I I believe he's being literal. I mean, he did that. He moved, he calmed a storm. Um, he caused a mountain to move at his death. It trembled and the graves opened. But he healed everywhere. Um, St. Paul said that a veil came over the Jews, that they ceased living their religion, that a veil came over the Jews. They lost that direct, immediate contact that they had with Yahweh. They're gone. Um, has a veil fallen over our Christian world today? I'm asking it very, very seriously. Are, are we doing or not doing in the way that was true of the Jews then? Are we living our faith, really believing our faith can heal us if we went to Christ? Or in a modern world in which science is taking over, is it easier for us not to believe because we expect so much from science? Helena cured when the doctors couldn't. Ceremon's a physician but he's doing something I'm assuming lots of physicians can't. So where does he get his powers? How are we to look at what he does at the end? Um, we live in a world in which we be- we've been taught to believe that man's a product of forces over which he has no control. In evolution, we're, ma- we're made to believe, even though there's no evidence, there is none, none, there is no evidence in evolution we came from apes. There's a missing link there and the scientists acknowledge it or they're not doing their science right. There's no evidence. We believe we came from nothing, so we believe our origins are low. We believe our origins are low. Um, Shakespeare lived at a time when the, when the world of honor was passing away. He knew that. Honor was not a small thing. What difference would it make if we had a view believing that God was God, that we were created by God, and that honor had something to do with the way we revealed him, that we honored that image, that there was a great dignity or something extraordinary to it. In Act 2, Scene 2, Line 15, this is when the king is talking with Asa, his daughter, about the tournament that's about to take place. He says, it's, it's fit it should be so, for princes are a model which heaven makes like to itself, as jewels lose their glory if neglected. He knows that if people are going to con- maintain their honor, they've got to be tested. They have to keep up with it. He's holding this tournament to find out who will be the winner to have somebody that wor- who's worthy of his daughter. Because honor is important to him. Now just listen to those lines. He's holding this tournament... To find somebody fitting for his daughter. She's a beautiful young woman. I want everybody to hold on to the relationship between the king here 
Simonides and Antiochus in the beginning. Antiochus's relation to his daughter, a beautiful, beautiful woman. Simonides' relationship with Thaisa, his daughter, a beautiful woman. What's the difference between those two leaders and their regimes? Regimes. Simonides says, it's fit, it should be so, for princes are a model which heaven makes like to itself. Man's created in the image of God. What a great honor. Men can have a false sense of honor. They can do things for their own ego. It's clear that the knights in this kingdom are good men. We'll come to that when we go through the scene. But they're good men. They're made in God's image. There's a sense of honor that men try to live up to. What happens when, they're take, when that sense of honor is taken away? What will happen to men? As jewels lose their glory if neglected, so princes their renown if not respected. He's doing everything he can to help these young men in his kingdom remain honorable. Do we, do we live in a regime in which those values are upheld? Particularly for men. Um, so, is there something we can do to cultivate a sense of honor? How do we do it? Those are the questions that I'm... I don't want you to answer them. I just would like you to keep them in mind, okay? As we go through the play. What I'd like to do right now is turn to the play and go through some of the passages with you. Um, but let me stop before we do any... Any questions or comments or observations any of you want to make about this too long opening, this overly long opening that I just gave given you guys? I'm amazed when I do these things with you guys. I mean, when I think about that world and what Shakespeare's doing in our world, and I made the argument before when we started Lear, why did Lear go back? Why did Shakespeare go back to Lear nine centuries before Christ? He wasn't showing us a nice world or a Christian world. In fact, he's showing a world that didn't know Christ. And I you know that I'm arguing that I think Lear is one of the most Christian Catholic works that's ever been written. It's extraordinary. Um, anyway, any thoughts or observations or questions or and you got that probing look on that what's what's on your mind come on you got something brewing there what's well I'm just thinking that the more things change the more they stay the same. these are universal ideas they are universal flaws they yep. are yep yeah so true so true so true the wonder of it, I mean, the, the, I feel like it's such a gift. The wonder of it is that it, it's through a work like this that we can see it and feel it deeply. You know, that it's not just an idea in our head. Um, we can live it. It's a part of our experiences. Um, so, so that it just doesn't go on the same way. Remember, one of the arguments that I made last week is that I think what Shakespeare's showing us in, in uh, Pericles, what makes him is heroic, is that he's not just a product of his age. He's not a child of his age. <coughs> and one of the dangers, I think, for people in every age, I mean, you sort of put your finger on it, one of the dangers for people in every age, certainly for a Catholic, is that you can, be, you can become too much of your age. Mm -hmm. You know, I, 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 I heard this. 
you all know that we converted. I mean, I was raised Greek Orthodox, so was raised in a sacramental world, but but thinking wasn't a part of it as much as it became when I became Catholic. But I remember hearing all the time this phrase in Catholic communities to be in the world but not of it, to be in the world and not of it, you know, that this play sort of exemplifies that truth in a, an amazing way. But anybody else, any? I think it's a little bit easier too when it's not a play about our world because we put ourselves in it too much and we get our pride and belief in the way. <laughs> That's another confirmation of what he's doing with Pericles. I mean, for exactly that reason, yeah. Lori, you got something? Oh no, I, I loved it. I, I I watched the I read the book and watched the the movie, well, the show, whatever you call it, I don't know, the play. The play and I, no, I it was very Catholic to me towards the end. Wow. Of, um, wow. What production? Because yeah. I, I, I don't think, think I've ever seen a pair, but what you liked it? What was it? Who did it? I'm sorry, I'd have to go up and look at it up in my, my room up there. I, I don't remember, but uh, Chuck was watching it in Paris. And I was, we, we started watching last week, but we finished it, and we were both we both cried at the end. Wow. Very touched by it. Um, Do me a favor, if and, you wouldn't um, mind. I mean, I could, send out the title to me or the whole class. Just let everybody know if you can. Okay, yeah, I just followed it with the book and just watched it, and I'd pause it if I wanted to reread something. Yep. And, uh, yep. And I guess it was just um, for me to, I don't know, we could talk about the end, but I just at the end when... Don't say, I'll come back. don't say, don't say. Okay, <laughs> okay I'm sorry. I want to hold that off. Um, but give us give us the production. Who did it? Cause okay, I, I'll, I'll email it to okay. you. Or okay. To every, okay, sure. Yeah. Anybody else? Okay, let's go to the play. Let's... What's he doing? You remember that Act 1 ended with um, Pericles going home and um, and um, Helicanus um, urging him to leave, to flee from Antiochus and leaving and um, Thaliard um, Antiochus's henchmen coming to kill him and finding that he's gone. Pericles goes to Tharsis, and um, what we discover there is that a, a city that was once extremely wealthy is now in poverty, and its two rulers, Cleon and Dionysia, are both grieving. I'm, I don't want to. I want to be very. I'm trying to be really careful with my words. Um, and they they hear the news that a ship is approaching and they are frightened that it's somebody coming to take advantage of their poverty, their helplessness. And they learn that as a matter of fact, Pericles has come bringing supplies. Um, so he helps them. Um, there's a number of times in, in which the word Greek is used. It's, it's in the act one scene four, the gods of Greece protect you and we'll pray for you. Um, Pericles comes, he offers his help, and that's where we left off. Um, Pericles says, which welcome we'll accept, feast here a while, until our stars that frown 
lend us a smile. That is until that wheel of fortune makes a turn again and things seem more favorable. So once again, we're not getting the image of the wheel the way we did in Lear, but the stars, the turn in fortune, particularly with the stars, is a major, it's just a variation on that same image. Um, in Act 2, in the beginning, um, Gower lets us know that um, what happened with Thaliard and everybody else, and he says that in Tharsis was not best longer for him to make his rest. He doing so put forth to see where when, where when men bent, oops, sorry, somebody, um, where when men bent, where when men bend, there's seldom ease, for now the wind begins to blow thunder above, he is returning home, but what happens is a storm throws him off, and he washes up on um, the seaside of Pentapolis. So I'd like to go through some just passages here to um, to help us get a sense of what's going on in Pentapolis. Remember the two. So there are several regimes so far: Tyre, um, Antioch, um, Tharsis, and um, Pentapolis. And here in Pentapolis, when he's washed up. Um, we're presented with these fishermen who are working, who are laboring away. So it's in, it's a it's a contrast to what we saw in um, in Tharsis with um, Cleon and Dionysia. And I want to go through some of these passages now. So if you go to Act Two, Scene One, the men are at work, and the third fisherman says about line twenty-five. The lines are not going to match up. I'm going to give you the lines I have, but you you probably have to scramble to find them because the the additions vary. But here, the third fisherman says, "They never come, but I look to be washed, master. I marvel how the fishes live in the sea. Why, as men do a land, the great ones eat up the little ones. I can compare our rich misers to nothing so filthy as to a whale." It plays and tumbles, driving the poor fry before him, and at last devours them all at a mouthful. That's a perfect image of most regimes and wealthy men and men in power. Um, Pericles says, because he's watching these men, a pretty mortal, they go on, um, the third fisherman again, but if the good king Simonides were of my mind, Pericles says, Simonides, we would purge the land of these drones that rob the bee of her honey. So he's, and by the way, that drones is a word from Plato. It's people who don't contribute to the good. They're actually taking advantage of other people. They're using them. We would purge the land of these drones that rob the bee of her honey to take away the sweet, the good things of people. Pericles, aside, how from these finny subjects of the sea these fishers tell the infirmities of men and from their watery empire recollect all that men, all may men approve or men detect. Peace be at your labor, honest fisherman. He presents them though, when they see. Um, about line 100 or so, um, Pericles identifies the king and the good Simonides, do you call him? Fisherman, the, the first one, I, sir, he deserves to be called for his peaceable reign and good government. Pericles, he is a happy king since he gains from his subjects the name of good by his government. How many 
particularly poor subjects, can say of their king that he's a good king. Most people who are in poverty resent their poverty. These men don't. They say he's good. Um, um, how far is his court distant from this short? Mary, sir, half a day's journey. They tell him of the tournaments that's going to take place, about line 115. Um, he just learns that one of the fishermen has snagged his father's armor, and then he makes this comment on it, about line 115. In armor, friends, I pray you let me see it. Thanks, fortune, yea, that after all thy crosses thou givest me something somewhat to repair myself and though it was mine own part of my heritage which my dad my dead father did bequeath to me with this strict charge even as he left his life keep it my pericles it hath been a shield twixt me and death and pointed to this brace for that it saved me keep it in like necessity the which the gods protect thee from may um, may defend thee it kept where I kept, I so dearly loved it, till the rough seas that spares not any man took it in rage, though calmed have given it again. The sea takes and it gives back. I thank thee for it, my, sh my shipwreck now's no ill, since I have here my father gave in his will. Now let me stop for a second. Mm -hmm. You know that now he has the, he learns about the tournament and now he has the armor to enter the tournament. But any suggestions about what this armor might symbolize allegorically or symbolically? What does it mean? What, from what Pericles says about it? What does it say about his father? What does it say about Pericles and his relationship to his dad? Wow. His honor? I don't, I'm thinking the honor and the heritage of the family that his father gave him. Can you picture his father from what, from who Pericles is and what he does? Take it a step a farther, Lori. Sorry, go ahead. A warrior, um, a strong man. I don't know. Uh, I just think of a man that was maybe a, a king also. I don't... Mm -hmm. Yeah, Ker Pericles is a king. Herod. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? It's interesting that he lost it at sea and it's given back. And what would have happened if he'd not had it? Melody, go ahead. Did you have a thought? Well, I'm with her that it, it, it represents honor and it represents one father passing that on to his son, not only honor, but the, the protection and respect that it brings. And if he wouldn't have had that armor, he would not have been invited to fight for uh, Simonides' daughter. Yeah. You no, know, he would have just been passed off as somebody who yep. they fished out of the ocean. Yeah. So it was really... Um, instrumental that he got that back. Yep, yep. Anybody want to try to connect this with fortune? I mean, pick up what Melody's saying. What if it had, what if it had not been washed up again? And leave the tournament. I mean, obviously he wouldn't have been able to enter the tournament. But is there anything else to say about him if his honor had not been given back to him? 
Okay, well, I'm going to say fortune in this play is not fortune, but it's providence, like divine providence that these things all happened for a reason. Um, he would not have stopped at that island or that city had his ship not wrecked. Uh, it did. Um, his armor came, his father's armor came. So it was all God working through all sorts of ways and the sea to bring what bring what needed to happen to fruition. Yeah, yeah. Good for you. Anybody else? I think you've got Lori's approval. She's shaking her head pretty firmly, yes. I love the divine providence part, yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's act two, scene two. Um, the king is um, making preparations for the tournament. Um, go to act scene two, act two, scene two, about line six. The, um, Simonides and Thesar are exchanging. Um, the king says, return them, we're ready, and our daughter, in honor of whose birth these triumphs are, sits here like beauty's child, whom nature gat for men to see and seeing wonder at. She was begot. It pleaseth you, my royal father, to express my commendations great, whose merits less. What does that say about her, if we can stop in that line? To express my commendations great, whose merits less. Can somebody paraphrase that line? I don't deserve what you're saying about me. She's being humble. Yeah. That you're saying a lot of great things about yeah, yeah, me. Yeah. I don't really deserve it. Yep, yep. Um, and then he, the king speaks the lines that I read a while ago. I mean, they're just stunningly beautiful. It's fit it should be so, for princes are a model which heaven makes. So we're, we're witnessing a king who knows how to rule. I just hope that that has to be clear. This man is doing what he should do to help cultivate honor. He's he's not mean, he's not overly sharp, he's gracious, but he's firm, he's doing things with his men to help them. And we get this good work these this good work about it from the fishermen. So we know that in this kingdom this is Plato's by the way, this is Plato's regime. There's a king there's a knight of no or a, um, a class of the nobles, and there's a class of the workers. All of them are in harmony in this kingdom. And here we've got a king doing what he should do to help nurture it. It's fit it should be it's fit it should be so for princes are a model which heaven makes like to itself. It's as if everything he's doing is in accord with heaven. What Melody just called this providential order, as jewels lose their glory if neglected. Tis now your honor, daughter, to entertain the labor of each knight in his device. So she's humble, knowing these men are going to put their lives at risk out of respect for her. Um, which to preserve mine honor I'll perform, she says. So all of the knights present themselves. I don't want to go through each one, but each one has a different motto on his shield. When it comes to Pericles, this is about um, line 40 or so, Thesa, he seems to be a stranger, but his present is a withered branch that's only green at top. The motto, in hac spe vifo, um, 
It's it's in the hope. Th- thus is faith to be tried. Is that in the hope? In the hope. In this hope, I I live. In this hope, I live. He seems to be a stranger, but his present is a withered branch that's only green on top. The motto is, "In this hope, I live." I think. What do we learn about Pericles from his shield and his motto? Look at the Lord's response. The king says a pretty motto, but look at the Lord. He had he had need mean better than his outward show, for by his rusty outside he appears to have practiced more the whipstock than the lance. Seems to be inferior. The second Lord. He well may be a stranger, for he comes to an honored triumph strangely furnished. Third, an onset purpose let his armor rust until this state is scoured in the dust. So they're aware of something, but the next word we get when we don't see the, the tournament is this great shout, and it says, they all say, the mean knight. So he, that, that is the, the man lacking in something. One. But before we go to the next scene, any thoughts about his shield and the motto on it? A withered branch that's only green at top. In this hope, I live. Well, my thought was it doesn't look great, but it's still bearing fruit. It's still alive. It's yeah. It's growing. Yeah. And it's sort of humble. I mean, to go with what Melody said about Desa. You know this beaten branch, but it's flowering. There's a beauty. I, I mean, the, and the the fact that the I mean the other lords are doing. It seems there are noble men. I think generally find it easy to put somebody who doesn't measure up in terms of look to put that person down. They're all acknowledging his outward appearance, but they're just missing a contempt. That's not quite what they're expressing. Um, though they're close to it. Um, the image is, is, once again, is an image of humility. It's out of this poor stuff that something noble comes. Um, he wins the tournament. Thesa um, gives him the garland, but you, my knight and guest, to whom this wreath of victory I give and crown you king of this day's happiness. This is Act 2, Scene 3. Pericles, tis more by fortune, lady, than my merit. King, call it what you will, the day is yours, and here I hope is none that envies it. In framing an artist, art has thus decreed to make some good, but others to exceed. That some people are going to exceed others. The really wonderful thing here is that he doesn't go around boasting what he does. It's so true of so many American athletes today. It's just He's acknowledging that there's something more going on than what he does. Um... The king, your presence glads our days. Honor we, honor we love, for who hates honor hates the gods above. Honor when it's good honor reflects God. When it reflects an ego, it's something wrong with the honor. I remember that we began to remember it, and I said that what's at stake in the Iliad is a false honor. It's a flawed honor code. It's an honor that in which men pride themselves in taking booty from others. And in the middle of that work, remember, Achilles says, such honor is a thing not, I need not, 
I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. He's associating his honor as something inherent in man. It can't be given or taken away with wealth or booty. Um, the king says, By Jove, I wonder that his king of thoughts, these cates resist me, the food. He not thought upon that um, people aren't thinking about him. He um, He's not thinking. Thesa, by Juno, that is queen of marriage, all viands that I eat do seem unsavory, wishing him my meat. Both king and daughter are aware, more aware of him than the food. Their thoughts are on him, that he seems melancholy, that he doesn't seem to be celebrating while the other men are. King says aside, he's but a country gentleman. He's done no more than other knights have done, has broken a staff or so. So let pa King is trying to dismiss it. They said, to me, he seems like diamond to glass. Pericles looks on at the king. Yon king's to me like my father's picture, which tells me in that glory once he was. Had princes sit like stars about his throne, and he the sun for them to reverence. None that beheld him, but like lesser lights, did veil their crowns to his supremacy. What Shakespeare's showing is there's some nobility that's inherent in some people. That's why lineage was so important for the English and why it so often got corrupted. Because a goodness was passed on through a line from a father to a son. But it could also go sour. I mean, kings could turn bad. And um, Where now his sons like a glow worm in the night, the which hath fire and darkness none in like. He's just putting himself down because he's he's not a, the king of a he's not a king the king of a or the son of a king. Whereby I see that times the king of men, he both their parent and he is their savior. That's an image for um, Boethus's wheel. The times in control, things come and pass, and gives them what he will, not what they crave. It's another image of fortune and how aware he is of it. Um. The king is aware that he's melancholly, and Thesa says, as he's watching him, alas, this is about line 65, Alas, my father, it befits not me unto a stranger knight to be so bold. He may my proffer take for an offense, since men take women's gifts for impudence. The king has just said, there's something wrong with him. Go, um, go offer him some wine, a toast. Down below, Thesa says, and further he desires to know of you, of whence you are, your name and parentage. He's just seen a likeness between Thais's father and his own father. Seeing this good king reminds him of his own father. Pericles, a gentleman of Tyre, my name Pericles, my education been in arts and arms, who looking for adventures in the world was by the rough seas reft of ships and men, and after shipwreck driven upon these shores. Um, the Thaisa thanks the gods for it. She's taken by him. The king will set everybody to bed. Act 2, scene 4. Um, all of the Tyrrhenians, the people of Tyre, um, are getting frustrated and impatient, and they're um, asking um, Helicanus to assume the role of king. He said he won't. He asked them to take another 12 months to give Pericles time to return. 
he says about line 40, try on, try honor's cause, forbear your suffrages, if that you love Prince Pericles, forbear, take I your wish, I, I leapt into the seas, where hourly troubles for a minute's ease, a twelvemonth longer let me entrust you to forbear the absence of your king, so he's waiting, they grant him his wish, Helicanus ends, saying, then you love us, we you, and we'll clasp hands, when peers thus knit, a kingdom ever stands, now, you know that um, 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 in the in the, I want to do this quickly because I want to get to a question here. Act two, scene five. The king tells all the knights that his daughter is not going to marry for a twelvemonth, and they leave. So clearly, he's using that ruse to get rid of them. He learns from a letter from his daughter that she loves Pericles. He has him read it. This is Act 2, Scene 5, about line 40. He says, take a look at this letter, Pericles. What's here? A letter that she loves the knight of Tyre. Tis the king's subtlety to have my life. Who seek not to entrap me, gracious lord, a stranger and distressed gentleman that never aimed so high to love your daughter, but bent all offices to honor her. Thou hast bewitched my daughter, and thou art a villain. By the gods I have not, never did thought of mine levy offense, nor never did my actions yet commence, a dead, a deed might gain her love or your displeasure. The king traitor, Pericles says traitor, the king says yes again, um, even in his throat, unless it be the king that calls me traitor, I return the lie. The king aside now, by the gods I do applaud his courage. Per Pericles, my actions are as noble as my thoughts, that never relished of a base descent. I came into your court for honor's cause, and not to be a rebel to her state. And he that otherwise accounts of me, this sword shall prove he's honor's enemy. The daughter comes, and Pericles turns and says, Tell my father, Thesis says, Why, sir, say if you had, who takes offense at that which would make me glad? Why would he be angry at learning that he loved her? she loved him? Now, I want to read this, and then I want to stop for a moment. The king says, Yea, mistress, are you so peremptory? Aside, I am glad on it with all my heart. I'll tame you, I'll bring you in subjection. So he's seeming as if she's resisting him, and he's going to force her to do his will. Will you, not having my consent, bestow your love and your affections upon a stranger? Aside, who for aught I know may be, nor can I think the contrary as great in blood as I myself. Therefore hear me, mistress, either fame your will to mine, and you, sir, hear you, either be ruled by me, or I'll make you man and wife. Nay, come, your hands and lips must seal it. He says that, God give you joy, what, are you both pleased? The two of them clasp their hands and they're married, and the, and the priest will say, now go to bed and have sex. I mean, it's just, that's the scene. Now I want to take a minute with this, and then I have a pressing question here, which is, what's the difference between Antioch and Pentapolis? The rulers, the people, and why? That's the first one. Before we do, explain this scene. Why does the king, who clearly sees the nobility of Pericles, when he has him read the letter, and, he, and Pericles learns that, it, that Thesa genuinely admires him and would love him. And the king responds by saying, you bewitch my daughter, you're a traitor. 
the two have words, and in the middle of the words, the king says to himself, um, now by the gods I do applaud his courage. Pericles is ready to fight for it. And then when his daughter comes out and he asks her to to be honest about it, and, and she's surprised at Pericles' reaction. And then the king goes through these motions of seeming stern that he's going to force his daughter to his will and and then says to um, Pericles to say either frame your will to mine and you sir hear you either be ruled by me or I'll make you man and wife may come your hands and lips must seal it too and being joined I'll thus your hopes destroy and for further grief God give you joy what are you both please characterize the king here What's he doing? First with the letter, and then calling Pericles a villain, and then in this scene where he seems to be putting on this role of forcing the kids to follow his will, um, when he does it all in joy and says, God give you joy, what are you both pleased in? Characterize this king. This is a very subtle scene, I think. It's a lot's going on in it. Connie, are you there? I hope I'm interrupting your food. Get back here with us, would you please? Take a bite and join us. I want to hear your... <laughs> Connie, are you there? Yes, I'm here. You have a... now, I, I, Can I... you characterize this king? What's this guy doing? Is he making sure that uh, Pericles is honorable enough for his daughter? Maybe? <laughs> That cool. he's a you know a good a good person, um, you know just kind of going that route. I think that's the first one. Does anybody else have a take on that when he calls Pericles a traitor? A traitor. I think that's what he's doing there, Connie. I, th I mean, I think you're right on that. Um, that he's t he already knows Pericles is good. He's seen him do good. It seems to be this. He's attesting. He's what? He's testing Pericles. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think he knows he's good, but I also think he's he's pushing the test a step farther because it's bringing Pericles to the point of fighting for his honor. And he's that is, he might die. Or whoever's going to go against might die because he's going to bring out his sword. I don't think there was a possibility of death in the tournament. We don't have details about it, but I think there was something done to protect the knights in some ways that we don't know. But here, Pericles is ready to risk his life. So I think you're right. I, I think the father is testing a, a man who seems to be good, and he wants to be sure. What's he doing in the next in this exchange when he's got the two next to him, and he's saying... You, mistress, are you so peremptory? It's like he's getting angry that she's already made up her will. And he's saying, um, you're going to do what I tell you to do. I'll bring you to subjection. Will you not, having my consent, bestow your love and your affections upon a stranger? Who, for aught I know, may be the contrary. Even though he knows he may be, he says, as honorable as himself. And then he says the same thing to Pericles and you, sir. Either be ruled by me, or I'll make you man and wife. Nay, come. Your hands and lips must seal it. He's telling the two of them to kiss and join hands. God give you joy. What, are you both pleased? Yes, if you love me, sir. What's he doing? 
fun with them. Go ahead, Doug. He's having, he's having fun with them, but he's still, um, in doing that, he's still claiming his authority. Um, he's going to tell them that they have to bend their wills to him, and that he's going to give them everything he want, they want. Did everybody hear Doug? Does there, would anybody disagree? Does everybody agree with her? Why is he, what kind of a man is he then? What do we learn about him as a king? This is serious. If I, if I could just elaborate, he, he, he seems to be having fun with a couple. Because I can, I, I find myself doing this with our kids a lot. He's making clear his, his authority can't be questioned. That people are to take his authority seriously. Um, they can't just ignore it and walk around it. So he's putting on this face as if he's uh, has to reassert his authority here when clearly he knows he doesn't. He loves his daughter. He trusts her. He's just tested Pericles. He's seen what a brave man he is. So he's making all these statements to affirm his authority, I think to, to make it clear that that can't be taken for granted. Because if it is, look at what happens to other kings, what they, how they misuse their authority, and when they fail in it. Creon as a husband fails badly. Dionysus will, um, I'm going ahead, but Dionysus will kill Pericles' daughter. Or, or, or set out to kill her. So authority is, is undermined and overthrown everywhere. Antiochus' authority rests on a lie, not nobility, not honor. It's a false authority. Yeah? Creon seems to be a noble man, but he really fails in lots of ways. Um, Simonides here has done, we've seen a king do everything he should do in his kingdom. He has the support of the fishermen. He has the support of the knights. He sends the knights off. He's done everything he can to prepare for this marriage. It seems to me he's having fun. He's, he's being stern with his words, all the while, while he's enjoying it, laughing at the kids, and then saying at the very end, "Nay, come, your hands and lips must seal it too." That is, you have to, you have to do my will. When he knows that's already their will. I mean, have, haven't you ever been in a position where you sort of make fun of somebody and you goad them along when you know you're goading them to what they already want because it's a good thing and you want you want it to have your approval? Nay, come, your hands and lips must seal it too, and being joined all thus. Your hopes destroy. For further grief, I'm going to do everything. You have to do all of this even though you don't want it. So I'm going to, I'm going to make your life miserable. And then he said, God gave you joy. What, are you both pleased? It's like a practical joker. He's having fun. Characterize this king. Now here's my question. Set Antioch and Tharsis and um, Pentapolis, those three regimes against each other. Because we don't, I, we're not going to, I wanted to get into three, but you know that what's going to happen in three is that Pericles is going to leave to go home. A storm is going to come up again. Um, his wife is going to be presented as dead. He's going to have to cast her overboard because the sailors say in superstition, the storm will be here until you throw over. So he has to throw over. He does. He's presented with his baby. He'll take the baby back to, um, to Creon and um, Dionysia and ask them to raise it. Um, 
until she's married and um and then he'll he'll leave um what's the difference between antioch tyre tharsis and pentapolis and their rulers let's start with antioch and pentapolis because both of them have father-daughter relationships My take on it is that the regions that are ruled by good kings ha are filled with good people, and the regions that are filled uh, that are ruled by bad kings are filled with bad people, um, like Tyre and Helicanus. I think his name is. Mm -hmm. um, he's a good, honorable man waiting for Pericles to return. Um, Antioch is obviously just a, a bad dude. He's a bad king. <laughs> and, uh, and nothing good's going to come from them. And then uh, Pentapolis is ruled by a good king. And the knights are honorable. And the daughter is honorable. And so they take their cue from... The royalty that that's there, um, and the most disturbing line I've ever read in any Shakespeare comes wow, from wow. what what's her name? Um, Thaisa. Diet. Di Dianisa. Dianisa. Yes. Sir. Yes. Where where are you? What where? Wait, take us. What what act? What scene? Um, it's act. Must be three. I have my little thing in here. One four. One. I don't know. Well, no, it's pretty early on when the, when he first comes there, um, and she's talking about how they had been starving. It's one four. It's one four. Oh, here I've got it. One okay. Um, one four. Let me see. Hold on, I wrote it down because it made me so upset. Um, that good heart of yours. Line. 4345. Read so, it. Read them. Um, those mothers who that is absolutely a horrendous thought that these mothers are starving to death and going to eat their own children. So to me, that whole... Um, that woman, that queen. Wait, that so that I that's from Cleon. No. Oh, that's Cleon. Oh, sorry, sorry. Okay. Oh, okay. You're right. I'm but go ahead. Go, go, go. But the the fact that they have they talked about how that um, that regime was so wasteful. They had everything, and they. They threw it in the streets. I mean, they 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 wasted all their plenty um, for riches strewn herself, even in her streets. They had everything, and they didn't appreciate it, and and now they're suffering. And and in the same way, when they adopted Marina, so to speak, to take care of her, but they didn't. Wait really on that. I don't want you to go there. Wait, a, but okay. but just because I um, I want to wait till we get her because that's. But just to reinforce your point.
that faced with starvation um, would now be glad of bread and bake for it. Those mothers who to nuzzle up to their babes thought not too curious are, are ready now to eat those little darlings. Whom now we're not sure that they're going to eat them but he's seeing a change in the women that now that they're starved they almost seem ready to be cannibalistic to save their own lives to eat their children. Right. So, yeah. it, must, it must be horrible and the thought that a mother could do that to her own children instead of just dying. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Means that's something for the regime, and then <sighs> uh, the king and queen are, yeah. are great representations of that, or horrible representations. Can anybody add anything to what Melody said? Can anybody? Can anybody? I mean, she went to Pericles. I'm glad, but to any more comments about the not just the regime but the rulers? What we know about. Pericles and his regime, particularly from Elicanus. Um, um, Cleon and Dionysia and um, Simonides. What's the difference between those rulers um, in the way that in the way that they live, what they do? How they what they do with desires, how they treat other people, um, could and could they have come to what they do on their own? Was the past important for them, informing them? Um, you know, there's all sorts of questions that Shakespeare is not giving us a play that gives us any easy answers, but it seems to me they're they all imply these. Do you have? Did you have a thought, Doc? No, I think you've been pretty clear. Huh? I said, I think you've been pretty clear. And you have a thought about the men? Well, I'm thinking that in poorly run regimes, rather than giving the people what they need, they are taking from them, from them for themselves. Yeah. And it seems fairly clear, at least one of the differences in Metapolis is that men are working for their livelihood, whether they're poor or wealthy. Um, the king's not letting the rich men spoil. He's throwing a tournament to test them. And it's clear from his words that virtue has to be practiced. Um, the men are working. In, in Tharsis, um, they're all feeling sorry for themselves. The king and queen are... are grieving over their losses, their miseries. They're just stuck in self-pity. They're not doing anything. Pericles comes in to rescue him, and, and I don't want to go there, but you know they're, uh, they're going to, um, Pericles is going to leave his daughter with them, and we'll see what happens with them. But um, So, um, in two of the regimes, the leaders are virtuous, in one of them, they're self-serving. Um, in one of them, the, the ruler is is ruling in ways that keep people at work busy. The fishermen are busy. They they're glad. Um, they're not they're not complaining. So important. They're not complaining because they don't have the wealth of the lords. Take a look at a democracy in ours and and ask whether the poor can ever be made comfortable here. And if you if you listen to the leaders, 
nobody will be happy unless they've got money and everybody's equal. Is everybody being equal and having money going to make everybody happy in a regime? If we were socialistic and everybody had the same amount of money and everybody was taken care of, would the corruption and evil disappear? Would people be happy? Because in a socialistic regime, the government takes responsibility for everything. Nobody takes responsibility anymore. The government decides everything. But we live in a democracy, and it's clear from the dialogue going on today that there are lots of people who believe that the poor are going to be miserable until they're made happy. I mean, there's a kind of... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know what you should make this about us. Um, no, I'm not. Um, the condescension and the presumption to look at poor that way as if poverty were an inherent evil. Shakespeare's showing us here that poor people can be happy if the regime is well run. Um, so we've got a number of different regimes and um, Pericles is coming into contact with each of them. So Shakespeare's showing us a, an individual struggling in his own life while he's also making clear how regimes can affect what people do. And it seems to me that one of the things we're learning about Tyre and Pericles and Pentapolis is how important the past is. Pericles admires his father greatly. He's trying to carry him on. How many, how many regimes do that well and inherit the past, carry it forward, cultivate honor? Um, um, just quickly, I, um, in Act 3, Scene 1, you know that because we've only got a few minutes. Shakespeare's on board going back to Tyre to return. Pericles. Or sorry, Pericles. And um, Lycorida, the nurse, comes with his daughter um, um, because Thais has given birth, um, but also informs him that his queen is dead in about line 15 or so. Take in your arms this piece of your dead queen. Pericles is shocked. He looks at the babe. I'm just going to quickly cover these lines so that we can we can pick up with Act 4 when we meet. About line 25, 30 or so, he says, Now mild may be thy life, for a more blusterous birth had never babe. Quiet and gentle thy conditions, for thou art the rudeless welcomed to this world. Thou art the rudeliest welcome to this world that ever was prince's child. Happy what follows? Thou hast this childing a nativity as fire, air, water, earth, and heaven can make to herald thee from the womb. Poor inch of nature, even at the first thy loss is more than can thy portage quit with all thou canst find here. Now the good gods throw their um, best eyes upon it. He can't imagine a worse birth. There's nothing he can do about it. What courage, sir, God save you. Courage enough, I do not fear the flaw. It hath done me to the worst. Yet for the love of this poor infant, this fresh new seafarer, I would, I would it would be quiet. He would wish the storm weren't there, but it isn't. The sailor comes to tell him that he has to throw the body overboard, and he goes to his wife and bends over, and he has these words. This is about line 60 or so. A terrible childbed hast thou had, my dear. Um, no light, no fire. The unfriendly elements forgot thee utterly, nor have I time to give thee hallowed to thy grave. 
but straight must cast thee scarcely confine in the ooze, where for a monument upon thy bones and air remaining lamps, the belching whale and humming water must o'erwhelm thy corpse, lined with simple shells. O Lacorida, Bidnester bring me spices, ink and paper, my casket and my jewels, and bid the candor bring me the satin coffin, lay the babe upon the pillow, hide thee whiles, I say, a priestly farewell to her, farewell, farewell to her, suddenly, woman. He can't dwell on the moment. He can't indulge himself. He has to get rid of her because if he doesn't, the, 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 he'll be facing the um, the shipmates and according to their superstition, a storm. She's washed up on the island of Ephesus. It's one of the cities I think Paul visited. Um, Saramon says about line 25 or so, virtue and cunning, this is an important line. I hold it ever virtue and cunning were endowments greater than nobleness and riches. Virtue and cunning, careless heirs, May the two latter darken and expend, but immortality attends the former, making a man a god. For man to have virtue and cunning, to be prudent, careful, mindful of what he's doing, um, is the basis of a good regime. Careless heirs make nobility and richness more important. Tis known I ever have studied physic. Um, through which secret art by turning o'er authorities I have together with my practice made familiar to me in my aid the blessed infusions that dwell in vegetatives and metals, stones, and can speak of the disturbances that nature works and of her cures, which doth give me a more content in course of true delight than um, to be thirsty after tottering honor or tie my treasure up in silken bags to please the fool of death. He works with nature. He's learned to bring out of nature what's there. Is there any way to describe what Helena did with the king in All's Well That Ends Well? She learned to work with what was there to bring the king to health. How many doctors study nature well enough to know nature to bring the best out of nature? To do that is to what God does by bringing good out of bad. Um, somebody comes to him with a coffin, he reads the scroll in sign written by Pericles, and he says, she's not dead, but notice the words about lady, line 85 or so. Well said, well said, the fire and cloth, the still and woeful music that we have, cause it to sound beseech you. The vial once more, how thou stirred, thou block the music there, I pray you give her air, gentlemen, the queen will live. Nature awakes a warm breath out of her. She hath not been entranced above five hours. See how she begins to blow into the live flowers again. She's exhausted. She's weakened terribly by it. But music plays in the background. It accompanies him to what he does. She's alive. Behold her eyelids. Um, Pericles returns to Tharsis, and it's there that he leaves his daughter, asks them to raise her until... Um, um, She's of um, the age to marry. And he um, says, Come, dearest madam, oh, no tears. La Carita, no tears. Look to your little mistress on whose grace you may depend hereafter. Come, my lord. 
um, it's then that he um, will name her um, in this scene, I think. Act 3, scene 4, we return to Ephesus, and it's there that um, Saruman suggests that they should go to um, Diana's temple and become a votress, uh, one of the, um, the Vestal virgins. Um, um, she says, my recompense is thank, that's all, yet my goodwill is great, though the gift's small. I mean, she's like Thaisa there. Um, her, she, she, her comment here is like the one that um, Melody described earlier, where she made commendations, but um, acknowledged her undeserving character that in her humility, um, she was aware that all these men had these great gifts. Act 4 is going to begin um, with um, Gower coming out and telling everything to happen. Let's stop here. Um, um, Thaisa has apparently died, and um, Saruman brought her back to life. Per um, Pericles is leaving his daughter, Marina, with um, Cleon and Dionysa, and he's going to return thinking that he will take up rule in Tyre. So that's where we are in the play. Let me stop. Any any last comments about um, what what's going on with Pericles and what Shakespeare's doing with him and um, any of the allegories dealing with storms and um, the situation that Pericles finds himself in that force him to do things that he didn't plan to do, um, how important these are for his own character development, who he becomes as a man. And how, um, one of the questions I'll ask at the end is, um, how different is Pericles at the end from who he was at the beginning when he went to um, to undergo that ordeal for um, Antiochus's daughter? Um, what do we learn about, what do we think about him there as a man, and what, who is he later after his marriage and losing his wife and his daughter? But any, any, comments on where we are at this point, how important storms are and trials and the, the sort of tests they become for us as human beings, what, what happens to all these people? Saruman is a wise man, as a Magus figure. Um, Look at how well Dionysia deals with uh, her envy about her daughter. Peric they owe Pericles. They owe their life to him. It's a chance to give back. He asks them to raise their his daughter. Um, the, the mother becomes so envious um, of um, Marina because she outshines her own daughter. Um, What's going to follow that is not going to be good. How well does she deal with change? How well does her husband? One of the things that hasn't been said about Helicanus and Tyre is that the people want a ruler. Um, we, it's clear from Shakespeare's scene that those lords do not flatter Pericles. Helicanus doesn't. He's a good servant. He advises well. He serves well. He doesn't want to want to try to be somebody he's not. He's offered the kingship. He refuses it. Um, 
we're learning a lot about rule, the, how, to, how to order the human soul, what we're supposed to do with ourselves, and how important that is for what we do with other people, right? We see that in the leaders, we see them in, in parents, um, how much they take from the past, what they do with it, how they deal with difficult circumstances when things get harsh. Um, last question, because we didn't spend enough time on it. What does the fact that Simides is playful with Pericles and his daughter say about him as a king? That scene where he's playing with him. We don't see we don't see that in Shakespeare's plays with kings. And we don't see it in any other kings. Pericles doesn't do it. Um, and Antiochus is, is not going to do it. Um, what does that say about him? Cleon doesn't seem capable of, or, or is he less a king for that? practical, playful side of him? He's what you described when you talked about Plato saying you need to be both strong and open, um, gentle, and so that he's showing his gentle side. So he's, well, he's the best king in the play. Mm -hmm some ways. We have to put that up against Pericles at the end. Sure, but Pericles hasn't really been a king. You know, I mean, for half the play, he's not a king. Right, he's, right. He's right. lost. He's right, right. Around. And I do think that this play shows us um, that how important it is to keep your honor while you're suffering because to rephrase a Shakespeare play, all, all's well that ends well. <laughs> I mean, at, at some point, that that honor is going to catch up to you. God watching down is going to see that you've stayed faithful. And um, I'm going to turn that around if I can for a second. Sure. All will end well if what you do to get you there is well. Right. I mean, it, it's a really interesting, all's well that ends well. That's sort of Machiavellian, the ends justify the means. And, but it's interesting that what's going on here is just the reverse, that it's, it's because he does suffer well, I mean, you put it that way, you know, that he struggles to be good, that the ending is as great, is full of the, is, has the blessings as, that it does at the end, that it ends as well as it does. Um, anybody else on the, sorry, sorry, go ahead, sorry. I wish I had a little gower who would tell me what was going to happen <laughs> over the next couple of years. <laughs> you, you do. It's called the church. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Anybody else on, on, on Seminides' playfulness? I, I, just really, I think it's interesting that he's clearly a king who takes authority seriously. He rules well. He doesn't play around. But it seems to me it's because he takes his authority so seriously and that people do do things well, they take it seriously, that they can be played. Put it differently, what would happen if a king wanted every, didn't take his authority seriously and fooled around? 
what would people do? Would he be able to be playful with them then? What would be the risk he would take being playful with them then? They wouldn't take him seriously. They'd abuse it. I mean, I think given our weaknesses in human nature, our tendency would be to take advantage of it in some way. He's a good king. He takes things very, very seriously. And because things are are done so well that there's such a goodness in his kingdom, he can play with them. Can a bad king play with, be playful with his people? I don't think so. There would be something wrong with him, first of all, um, in the way that he would deal with authority, matters of authority. So Shakespeare's showing us something really rare, I think, that, um, to, to show a king being as playful as Simonides does in this thing, and it's going to result in his marriage. And then he ends it by saying, go to bed. <laughs> Just, you know. He's obviously a king who, who has a good sense of humor, who, who takes authority seriously, but who can also enjoy the music, the celebrations, the tournament, the, the feast afterwards, the fact that he and Thesa were so, so much more concerned about um, Pericles than they were their food. Would um, Cleon and Dionysa have done the same if they had a banquet with food in front of them? And Pericles appeared upset. It's a serious question to me whether they would have been concerned enough. They probably would have been eating their food. That is satisfying their desires. What we do with our desires is absolutely at the center of this play. Um, how we handle them, what we do with them. And it seems to me at this point, I know I'm looking ahead, it seems to me one of the, one of the qualities that we can attribute to Pericles is that he is a man of real faith. He, he, he just holds on while things are not going well. And he doesn't resign, he doesn't go nuts, and he doesn't resign. He, he, doesn't, he avoids both of those extremes. It, remember Aristotle's, we saw this with Portia when we did or, uh, Merchant of Venice. Virtue is a mean between extremes at every point. Whatever regime, whatever condition we're in, whatever the demands are, because they're going to change from circumstance to circumstance, right? We're going to be dealing with a different challenge. The question is, can we, can we struggle to make that mean real, whatever the conditions are? That's the sign of a virtuous person. This play is, is all about affirming the role of virtue as a condition for bringing in a greater blessedness as its fruit, as its end. It's an opening for the the experiences of blessedness at the end of this play. Compare this play to Lear. Lear and Cordelia are extraordinary. I just think they're beautiful creatures. But he's showing us a tragedy there, the, the awful things. Here he's showing us a, what I'm going to call it, um, a sacramental, a sacramental play. Miraculous things happen because of what people do, the good things that they do. The good things that they do make an opening for God to do more. Put it that way. Yep. Okay. Any last thoughts before we close off? Good to see you all. Um, keep us in your prayers, please, all of us. Um, a lot's going on, and um, pray for us. We will be praying for you guys, all of you. Um, 
Michael, I um, we'll be praying for your daughter, um, and and Melody for your friends too, and Connie for the. Um, you weren't there at the beginnings, but I know you had somebody on your. <laughs> okay, um, you guys have a good week. See you next week. Bye. Thank you. Good night. Have a good night, everyone. Good night. Thank you. Good night, everyone.